1: Welcome to episode 448 with my guest, Adrian Nolan-Smith. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod, also the social media handle. You can follow me uh, or the show at. I want to kick things off with an email that I got from somebody. Uh, and they write, Paul, love the podcast, but there's one thing that concerns me. You tend to ask your non-white guests to talk about their race and ethnicity. That's not cool, Paul. I know you have the best intentions, but when you do that, you make it seem as if race and ethnicity are only relevant when talking to non-white people, thus making white the, quote, default race. That's not cool. If you want to go that route... Then have each and every one of your guests describe themselves, or only talk about it where it is relevant, as determined by the guest. Let them claim their story. Uh, first of all, I appreciate any feedback that that I get from uh, from listeners. And you know, this one really got me uh, pretty introspective and in thinking about, you know, trying trying to kind of uh, uh, decipher exactly. Um. what it is Here, here's the thing I want to know is it the way that I go about it because the white race boy there are no good sentences that start that way are there the white race white people is the we've heard from you enough race what I'm looking for on this show are the untold stories the feelings and experiences, especially people who have been marginalized, or who I want to learn more about, uh, especially when it comes to mental illness, and very often in the minority communities, uh, it's stigmatized even more than it is uh, in the in the white community. And you know, if if I want to know more about the experience of people who are white, I can turn on the TV, I can listen to the radio, I can go to the movies, I can follow politics, I can watch the news, I can read history. And I do ask people who are white sometimes about cultural things, if they were raised Catholic, if they were raised Jewish. Um, So I am, I guess this is me defending myself, but I guess I would like to know the way it is how do I how do I learn more about people I haven't heard enough from without sounding like a douche. I guess that's what I'm concerned about. Uh so I would appreciate any feedback that uh that people people have. Um I guess I'm just a little confused. You know, I think it would be different if if, if I was launching into a stereotype uh, about uh, uh, a group of people and treating them as if they were this monolithic thing and, you know, please speak for all of your people. But from the people who are friends of mine and people that I've talked to, aren't white, almost everything gets filtered through them being othered by society. So how do I talk about somebody, how do I get somebody to open up about being treated as an other without treating them like an other? I guess that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question, which due to inflation is now about sixty thousand dollars. But thank you for uh for sharing that. I want to give a uh this is not a sponsor, this is uh there's this, this this place called rejuvenative foods. It's a... um a maker of natural foods that I've been using for I don't know, probably 12 years, I discovered them. I read this book called The Body Ecology Diet about healing your gut and eating things that are healthy for you, like cultured vegetables and unprocessed foods. Um, and this place is like a mecca for me. I subsist on their cashew butter, their pistachio butter, uh, their uh, kimchi All of that stuff has helped me so much and they are kind of in financial straits lately and I was talking to the owner of it and I said, you know what? I would love to give you a shout out on the podcast because I love what it is that you guys do and I don't know if it will help or not but their website is rejuvenative.com and they have, it's just, we need more places like this and it, it kills me that they're kind of in financial straits. I know they're doing a fundraiser but... You don't even have to donate, just go to their website and buy their stuff. They have a lot of raw, uh, organic, unprocessed uh things and it is almost single-handedly helped repair my gut more than any other thing that I've that I've done. Um and it's uh, Rejuvenative Foods and their website is rejuvenative.com and I'll put a link to that under the uh the show notes. Our sponsor for today is betterhelp.com. If you've never tried online therapy, I highly recommend it. I love doing it. I've been doing it for a couple of years. I talk about it every week. Um, my therapist, Donna, is really helping me work through some of my fears of asking for help. That is one of my, I, I, I suppose it's kind of the, you know, the person who is used to, uh, always listening to, What somebody else is going through and offering advice we are often the person who has the most difficulty asking for help ourselves and she's she's helping me work through that and it's really uncomfortable but she's helping me take baby steps to try to expand the podcast um to try to ask for help from (coughs) excuse me volunteers Uh, especially people to uh, help me find uh guests anyway if you've never tried it, go to betterhelp.com mental, fill out a questionnaire. Uh, make sure you include this slash mental so they know you came from this podcast. Uh, betterhelp.com mental, fill out a questionnaire, and then if they have a counselor that they think is a good fit for you, they'll match you up with one, and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. Man, you need to be over 18. Okay, two quick surveys, and then we're going to get to this interview with Adrian. This is an awfulsome moment filled, by, uh, uh, filled out by a guy who calls himself, Just Don't Abandon Me. And he writes, I've always struggled to tell people no. I'm absolutely terrified of people abandoning me because I can't be who they want me to be. I'll say yes to any request, sex, money, labor, anything. When I do say no, people have this absolute disdain on their faces that I can't stand. So I always say yes. My sister and I were in New Orleans this past weekend. She was having a manic episode and said we should get matching tattoos. When I tried to say no, she persisted that I shouldn't be a coward and offered to pay. Now, I have a tattoo of a cowbell on my stomach that will never go away. I now have a physical reminder as to what happens when you don't say no to people. Hopefully, my girlfriend won't leave me over this. More cowbell. And then this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Pretty Amy. She writes The closest I ever came to committing suicide was on a Wednesday while driving in my Honda Civic about 14 years ago. I had a newborn in the back seat that was screaming incessantly. Doctors called it colic and offered absolutely no advice or explanation for it. Just hang in there and it will pass. If that baby was awake, he was screaming. Sometimes I would put him in the car and just drive because that helped him sleep and gave me peace for a few minutes. Not that Wednesday. He was shrieking in the back and neither of us had slept for two months and I was completely on edge, sobbing and thinking about just ending it. That was when I noticed a pickup truck riding my ass, tailgating me, and gesturing with his hands and flicking his lights. That's it. I'm going to do it, I thought. I'm going to stomp on the brakes and be done with this shit. Then he flew around me and slowed up. He was about ready to curse me out when he saw my swollen, tear-streaked face, unwashed hair, and white knuckles. Kill me, I screamed out the window. Just kill me. The look on his face was anger melting into confusion. He was choking on words. I, uh, what the... Then he threw up a peace sign and sped off. I sat in my car just breathing and then burst out laughing. That moment of considering suicide had passed and I would live to fight through another day. The baby continued screaming, but I kept the windows down and turned the radio up.
0: Nobody's Nobody's cool and everyone's scared scared, and we're we're just all all in in this this together. together. There was no joy. Overeating.
1: Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out. Physically, I wish that I was a girl. Panic attacks are so violent, rudderless. They were mistaken for seizures. Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me. romantically. I am becoming the woman that I feared. He said, "There's going to be a saga of the Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, "Hey, I can't deal." Just beyond broken. I'm out. You have to like fantasize about the person I'm with. Don't gonna stop it Fucking someone else.
0: It's okay to be different. That I don't want to die is a miracle. To be weird. I'm so happy to be here i'm gonna help you one day people are gonna love you for that
1: it takes a lot of work to heal
0: it's hard being a weird kid
1: sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it i will just never see what you're not looking
0: for i didn't know how to break up with him so i just transferred schools
1: (laughs) i'm here with adrian nolan smith who's a a patient uh what do you call it patient advocate uh uh,
0: patient Advocate. Mm-hmm. Patient
1: Advocate, which explain to uh, myself and the, the the kind listeners exactly what that means.
0: Sure. So it's actually um, a pretty new certification. Um, it actually just became a board-certified exam that you could sit for uh, in March of 2018. So um, I um, had been working in the conventional healthcare world um, in the health tech space for three years following business school and uh, before I launched my business. And I'd learned, I worked with hospitals every week. So I was, I learned a ton about the actual healthcare system and how it works. And so once I did launch my business and um, this certification, I just saw it, you know, pop up. I thought, wow, I should actually, you know, dump out all this knowledge that's in my brain about Medicare billing and, you know, sort of all these really intricate pieces of the healthcare world into something that I can actually be certified in and should I actually want to work with people on a one-on-one basis or just in general, this helps to form the different things that I can offer to people as part of my business. So I did.
1: What what a much-needed service. Navigating, uh, I know i preach into the choir, but navigating the bureaucracy of the medical system and especially the mental health system is so daunting and so favors people with expendable income. It's it's unbelievable.
0: Well, and not just that, it it forces you into making decisions about practitioners and doctors that are going to be paid for rather than who are really interested in helping you heal. Right. And so, you know, as I've said to people with different out-of-pocket expenses and HSAs and things like you can see 12 doctors that are in network and if nobody helps you and then you finally see somebody who's really good at treating or understands how to get mm-hmm. to the root cause of your stuff and it costs more, like isn't that worth it? And I know that's you even, you have to have cash to begin with to even make that decision. But for a lot of people, I think there's a, there's a belief that you shouldn't really be paying for anything that, re- that relates to your health in cash. Um, when I think that's just simply not true, you know, to, to really find exceptional people today who are going to be willing to work with you to heal.
1: In an ideal world, we wouldn't have to, but Yeah. yeah, the reality is, and it's why I do a PPO instead of an HMO, um, because I want to be able to, I've, I've had enough surgeries and, you know, et cetera to know that, yeah, there are some people out there practicing medicine that are not naturally curious. And really can't wait to get home at five o'clock.
0: And just see the next patient and make more money. You know, if you spend more than 10 minutes with a patient, you're losing money. You know, so you have to look at the incentives, and even good people respond to incentives. So, you know, that's just part of it, unfortunately. Uh,
1: I want to talk about your story and your battle uh, with an autoimmune disease. you had Lyme disease, or is that considered an autoimmune disease?
0: It's not really. It's I think it's considered a tick-borne illness. Okay. Um, yeah, just because it, you know, it's autoimmune is is really your body attacking itself, and gotcha. it, it's sort of hard to figure out why it might be attacking itself. Okay. Versus when you get a tick bite, it's like you know okay. who's attacking you. I yeah. got you.
1: So what they share in common is that they are both often misdiagnosed or aren't. Really thoroughly uh, tested for, and people Absolutely. suffer for years not Absolutely. knowing or yeah. not being believed. Especially with autoimmune disorders, I, th- I think a lot of people completely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so share your your story with us, and actually lay the groundwork uh, for what childhood was like for you. What was? Uh, what are some? Moments from childhood or adolescence that you think have kind of informed who you are or how you view the world or yourself?
0: Yeah. Um, so my Lyme story and my childhood and view of the world are very connected because I was diagnosed with Lyme when I was 11. Um, and it was exactly the same time that my younger brother who had had horrible health symptoms for years, um, you know, doctors told my parents that he had learning disabilities and that's why he was sort of Brain fog and memory issues. Um, they said he just had growing pains when he was clawing at his knees, you know, with joint pain. And my dad was taking him to the ER, you know, in New York where we grew up weekly to try to, you know, figure out what the heck mm-hmm. is going on with this kid. And of course, they had nothing to say. Um, and this went on for a long time. And it wasn't until he was diagnosed that they looked at me and said, well, she's been really tired lately and she can't remember anything. And, she, you know, this is really unusual for an 11-year-old to be so um, lethargic and just kind of like spacey and out of it. And sure enough, I also had Lyme and we grew up you know, going to Lyme, Connecticut in the summers. (laughs) Honestly. Honestly. So it was not a big surprise. Um, But you would think because of that, more doctors in the conventional system would have put those things together, but they didn't. And so um, we had passed the point at which antibiotics will work. Um, You know, you have to catch Lyme really early for antibiotics to actually be able to find it. After that, Lyme goes in all kinds of places where the antibiotics can't reach. And so... We did it anyway, didn't work. And sure enough, it kind of, my mom was a, you know, she was in the first class of women at Columbia Business School. She was a, you know, management consultant turned stay at home mom and just like a fierce researcher before Google was, you know, even around. We then spent about two years doing every treatment you can imagine because she just wouldn't take no for an answer that this was sort of like the state of which we were just going to be living with this, which is basically what they said, like, once the antibiotics don't work, you can either try more antibiotics or you can just deal and good luck to you. And um, we did, you know, Chinese herbs with this tea, you know, from uh, herbalist and flushing. We did um, applied kinesiology. We did acupuncture. We, you know, started seeing a chiropractor too. We did a ton of like what's now I think sort of functional nutrition and Naturopathy and um, homeopathics. And uh, the two most impactful treatments I think that we did um, were hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Um, I was literally living in like a motel six with my mom and my younger brother for several weeks, um, you know, the summer between sixth and seventh grade when, you know, you just want to like have your first kiss and go to this, you know, the dance and whatever. But I, was going into this sort of tanning booth looking thing for several hours a day and getting this hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And then, um, I still wasn't better. And so the following summer, my mom really dug and I ended up doing, um, what's called bovine colostrum therapy, which is very, it's still an orphan drug phase. So it's technically illegal, but, um, orphan drug phase does mean that the FDA thinks there's, you know, evidence that it works. And so they're trying to get, uh, Pharmaceutical brand to actually patent it and develop it and do all the trials and stuff like that. So there was a farmer in Minnesota who somehow, you know, sort of she found on like this black market who was willing to, um, you know, take the risk and and treat people who wanted bovine colostrum therapy. And the sad part of the matter is, after the fact, the FDA like came after him and like arrested him and. It's a, it actually launched this whole huge movement in Minnesota, spearheaded by this attorney who'd been cured of a disease through bovine classroom therapy, working with him. And um, it's called like the health freedom movement. And he ended up having three different trials and hung juries and things thrown out. And he ended up dying very shortly after because he was sort of an older guy. He was a farmer. And it was just it was... It was an awful situation because he was, he helped a lot of people, but, you know, they tried to make him look like he was, you know, a quack and such. But.
1: And, and uh, describe what a hyperbaric chamber is.
0: Uh, so hyperbaric oxygen chamber, I mean, it seriously looks like a, like a tanning booth, you know, a sort of a bubble thing and you lie in it. And the idea, I think, with hyperbaric oxygen therapy is that, you know, you can oxygenate the cells to really kind of attack things. And it's almost like you you supercharge your immune system. Um, and it will go and sort of be able to find the cells that are corrupted or if there's a virus or a bacteria um, like Lyme. So that was that treatment. And then the bovine colostrum therapy is, you know, colostrum is just the early stages of mothers breastfeeding milk. And so it's super rich with Immune boosting and different things that you know that basically give you everything that you might need um, right. for for immune protection and certainly fighting off disease. And cows don't get Lyme, and so or their immune systems seem to be able to handle it better. So, sort of by tricking their you know reproductive system with my blood, which had Lyme in it, to create antibodies against it, and then I would be able to drink that. Um, it was sort of creating this like reverse immune loop um, mm. because the problem once Lyme is really far in you is that your body doesn't know where to fight it. It's like not able to yes, see it yes. the same way that, you know, cancer is masked. Yes. Your body's not attached. It's the
1: Al Qaeda of the body. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's very, uh, it, it nestles in there in those caves and yes. yeah, it's very hard to root them out. So long story short, after that uh, treatment, I Started to really recover. Um, And I think coupled with everything else that I was doing, it's very hard to say what exactly the thing was that, you know, was the most effective. Um, But my brother took longer. He was so much more sick than I was, but we both recovered. And, you know, my mom was, had a lot of health issues herself. And so, For her, it was all about making sure that we got better. It was like her new job. You know, she just funneled all of her energy into that and really wasn't taking care of herself. Um, and so, you know, fast forward, um, my second kind of major health issue, uh, came when I was in college and, you know, I'd been, because of the Lyme issue, my family had just completely changed the way we lived. You know, we, we only ever bought products at the health food store. We didn't, you know, really have dairy and gluten and all these things, because my mom learned so much from that experience about how to really boost the immune system. And Lyme, you know, you can, a lot of people relapse. And so she always wanted to make sure that we were doing things that would keep it from coming oh, back. So
1: it's really only goes into remission. It yes. doesn't ever really right. disappear.
0: So, right. So it's, it's inactive, like a lot of viruses and you know, mm-hmm. bacteria. So similar to like a herpes or an Epstein-Var, like it, mm-hmm. the, the screener will come up on blood work and then they dive in further and see how many bands, which basically is like a sign of activity, right? Is it actually like taking you over? Do you have any co-infections, stuff like that. So mm-hmm. um, for the last, you know, 20 years, I haven't had active Lyme, so it goes into remission. But a lot of people relapse. And they don't live the lifestyle that you need to live to actually keep it from coming back. And so once their immune system gets compromised enough, mm-hmm. it can flare up. But uh, fast forward to when I went to, away to college, I stopped, I, I ate in a cafeteria, you know, three times a day for six months. And all of a sudden I, I lost, I stopped getting my period. I had no idea why, but it was alarming after several months. And so I started to, you know, enter the conventional healthcare system, which I hadn't really done anything with since i kicked lyme when i was like 13 Mm. so two years of going to different you know endocrinologists and gynecologists and trying to understand like what's wrong with me why is it gone you know because it's a i knew that it was a really good indicator of your overall health if you were not having it or having it and um you know, nobody was interested in actually getting to the root cause of the problem. It was just like, take the birth control pill. You're fine. This Mm -hmm. happens sometimes. Like, you know, really...
1: Please don't make me open a book. Please don't make me open a PDF.
0: Right. I'm like, can (laughs) you just do some research on alternative treatments to, you know, pharmaceuticals? Because like, I just really don't want to do that. I want to get to the root cause. Like, maybe it's something in my diet, you know, this and that. No interest. So my... After a year, year and a half... I finally my father found a naturopath in New York for me to see and I started working with her and she just looked at everything so differently. I mean, she spent 45 minutes just going over my blood work with me and explaining all these different components of it and talking about different experiences that I'd had with, you know, I lived in China when I was 16 and maybe that, you know, China gut and all these connections between gut health and hormones and that could have had something to do with it and whatever. And I did her program of, you know, really like a kind of strict diet and Chinese herbs and acupuncture, not like complicated stuff, but just like a different way of looking at similar, uh, you know, a specific protocol that she had come up with. And she said, you know, do this for six months, it'll come back. And like six months and a day later, it did. And, you know, it's been normal for, for 12 years since then. And that was like my strike two of like, what the heck is wrong with this system? Like, you know, this Lyme thing, thank God my mom and my parents had the resources to try all this weird stuff that worked. Um, But I was kind of ready to be done with, like, you know, you're in in middle school, you just think your parents are crazy anyway, but this really felt like they were really crazy. And so I wasn't really like a believer in the power of this kind of medicine and how broken the conventional system was until, you know, now there's strike two. And I'm like, whoa, okay, this is wild. Because so many of my friends have problems like this and they just mask it they just take just the birth control pill and it's they, just band- aids it's just band-aid and they the whatever the underlying problem is getting worse every year every mm-hmm. month you know yeah. so they're maybe going to go off fit when they want to have a baby or something and then they're going to realize they have all these different health issues that were you know being covered up so that was like a big strike number 2 and then the most significant kind of part of my story and why I'm doing what I'm doing now came just a couple months after, you know, my period came back. So it's like one good thing and then like, you know, 4 months later, my mom had a massive manic episode and it was in New York where we grew up and me and my two brothers ended up having to chase her through the New York City subway system because she thought we were trying to kill her. Oh my um, god. And, you know, basically tackle her in some late night far away neighborhood in Queens. Um and put her in the back of a cop car and you know no idea where she's going but
1: had she ever had a uh, I assume there was psychosis involved or paranoia or
0: paranoia Mm -hmm. I guess psychosis I guess a lot of um delusions yeah um but you know What, what was that
1: like emotionally for you if if you can try to remember what it what it felt like in your body and your soul and your mind any any snapshots
0: i remember that experience feeling like i was in a movie like is this really am i really on a street corner at one in the morning i was almost like you know in like nervous laughter you're like right. what on earth is going on like that we are watching our mom just completely like lose it and I mean, you know, clearly was in a manic state, which I'd never really seen before from anyone. So it was just wild to see. Um, And
1: had she been taking meds? or?
0: No. So I think, you know, I still think to this day all about the different things that really were going on there. And, you know, this was pre-microbiome project. And I would say that now this was, to me, very clearly a gut-brain, like runaway gut problems for so many years that were untreated that eventually um once something was triggered it just all the f- cards came tumbling down and the trigger was my parents got divorced when i was 18 and she i think you know 24 years of marriage like father of her three kids and i think you know sh- her brain had been deteriorating from all of these untreated kind of like parasites and you know, other gut problems, chronic fatigue, Epstein Barr, all this stuff going on, um, and also she had a lot of emotional trauma from her childhood because she had an alcoholic mother, and you know, sort of a violent situation there too, and um, never really dealt with that. Uh, right. To you know, and so once there was a big trigger of some kind, which was this divorce, everything just kind of came tumbling down. But she was living in florida like near her sister after the divorce because she just was like you know she didn't want to be in new york where you know my dad was Um, and we weren't able to really see the extent of how bad it was getting um until it kind of was like this this situation and uh i would say also sending your parent in the back of a cop car like you have no idea and you i mean we all know the bureaucracy of police and government in general and kind of how people get mistreated in the system and it was terrifying because you're like what if you know where is she going to stay tonight like what are they going to do to her you know she's not a criminal but also like they they often merge the criminal and the mentally ill yeah, the, and it's the people
1: who are unsafe to themselves and the people who are unsafe to others.
0: Right. And uh, all she not, did was yeah. just try to run away from us, you know, so I I was not sure that they were really going to be able to fully understand that she was, mm-hmm. you know, a special case. She was just having these delusions and paranoia, but they, you know, it's a city jail, you know, what Earth's, sure. you know, mental health care system, like it's hard to say. So, This started a five year they diagnosed her with schizoaffective disorder, which I think is some kind of combination between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. But to me it's like, what the heck does that mean? You know, it's it's like fibromyalgia. It just means you have these symptoms. We don't know what that means. We'll give it a fancy name. And but it's real still. No, no, it's very real. I'm saying like it's not a diagnosis in the sense that
1: Like a broken arm, that here's what you do, this is the protocol. Right, Right. yeah, Yeah,
0: it's like what what caused it, you know, no idea. Like Lyme, at least, it's like a tick bit you, right? Right. Um, So they immediately just tons of meds, all kinds of horrible meds. And I didn't have any experience with the mental health care system before this. And what I saw was that once you give your loved one to the system or yourself – you're you're not really going to get out. Like they're not really going to let you go off meds or your body is also like now it's kind of been like this drugged up state and you kind of, you know, each drug has a a myriad of side effects and then you start taking other drugs for the side effects. Like she couldn't sleep. So then she was on sleep meds and she was drooling and she had tremors. And so they gave her different meds for the drooling and the tremors. And then, you know, it's just like a rabbit hole. Like where does it end? You know? And, um, And my uncle was her legal guardian at this point because my parents had divorced, but I was very much involved in going to the doctor's offices and stuff and trying to understand like what we could actually try that was more root cause driven because I knew that that, there was something underneath causing all of this. It wasn't random, you know, and 55 year old woman, like it's just, it's a lifetime of untreated other conditions adding up that would cause the brain to, you know what I mean? It's not like it was there forever or she was young and this sort of you know was just part of her journey right
1: um do we know that for sure though and i just want to play devil's advocate here because i i do believe in some circumstances even though i think it should be the last house on the block some medicines have saved my life i've tried to go off them and while i may not have researched um, natural remedies as thoroughly as I could have, uh, the desperation when you can't get out of bed and you finally find something that can, and I hate big pharma. I hate that I have to take meds, but it is the only thing that is working for me. And I, and I just want to put a caveat in there that while I completely believe in, uh, alternative medicine, especially Eastern medicine and natural things. I've done Chinese herbs and acupuncture and all that kind of stuff. Um, I also think there are some times when we have to dance with the the devil, if not long-term, at least short-term. And so I, okay. I just want to say that in case there's anybody out there who is in a, an acute state um and they're like, see, I, I knew it. I need to, you know, not take these even though I want to go jump off a a a bridge. It you can be taking something while you are also exploring alternative ways. It's super complicated. I don't know how to say exactly how to do it, but that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you as a guest. Because this is so complicated. And because there are so many um, strong opinions on on both sides of the issue, and I guess I'm kind of somewhere in the middle, and I just want to make sure that I'm not silencing myself just to get along with you on every point you're making. Because I want everything that you are saying to be true for all of us. My fear is that across the board, everybody's issues won't be able to be dealt with naturally. For instance, like here's a a great example, a positive one, the body ecology diet, that book changed my life. I had uh candida, which is an excess, I'm sure you know, of yeast in the gut. I was so fucking tired. My digestive system was completely out of whack and not a single Western medicine doctor could figure out what was happening, had really any intense curiosity about it. And I suffered for about 10 years. And then somebody turned me on to that book and I came to find out, oh yeah, the Western diet is excessively acidic and excessively sweet. And that feeds yeast, which kills the good flora in your gut. And she's shaking her head. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Um, and All of a sudden I had more energy, you know, my digestion returned to normal and I became a a believer. So I eat cultured vegetables and I, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I am on your side. I just also want to be responsible in how I navigate this as a host.
0: Absolutely. And an idiot. (laughs) Let me say that in an emergency or an acute situation, or just like you said, in a temporary situation, thank God for pharmaceuticals i mean what would i have done in that night without something that they could put her on to get her to come out of that manic state like i don't know what i would have done i still think about what the right move was there and you know i still come back to like well that's what you need in an emergency like it got mm-hmm. so bad that that was what was needed right and i still still completely believe that. And if the option is not getting out of bed at all, because you can't even go to get figure out what might be wrong with your gut that you had back, you know, Candida mm-hmm. and reading the book, um, mm-hmm. and actually, you know, talking to the friend who suggested that you read the book and then mm-hmm. taking them up on, I mean, that's all a bit of open mindedness, which yes. if you're in a certain state, and you can't even get there, then maybe you need something else. Um, so I completely agree with that. I'm um, not saying that it's on people to you know, say they're not going to do that and try to find a natural cure if the system really hasn't progressed to find that for them. Yes.
1: And after my gut got healed, I tried to go off my meds because I thought, well, the depression was coming from this and I became suicidal and it was, yeah, it was a, a nightmare. And I, uh, was so close to like planning suicide. I was thinking about it so much. I, it suddenly occurred to me, oh my God, maybe this is the depression coming back. And I went back on my meds and within three days, I had returned to my normal self. And uh, and it's why I started this podcast because this is so complicated. Yeah. And this needs to be talked about in a way that is detailed and nuanced, even if it is confusing and it's polarizing. Yeah. So I just felt like I had to get that No, and I agree with you. And
0: I think that my, my stance now, because I take a hard line on people in the actual caretaking roles, the, you know, the system, the conventional healthcare system, need to come at it from a root cause analysis. Yes. That's really where I support the use of more like these integrative modalities is because at least those kinds of practitioners that are using those modalities are trying to actually heal the root cause instead of band-aid them. Yeah. And so that does not mean there isn't a role, like I said, in, in acute situations yes. or when Correct. you just haven't figured out the thing yet, right? Like you yes. got, you got the first layer with the candida, but mm. the next layer, you haven't, you know, found the right person to help you get there or the right book or the mm. whatever. And so what are you going to not to do anything for your health between you know person A, Candida, person B, maybe, you know, the depression. So no, you absolutely need to keep functioning. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the drugs is what's needed, then that's yes. absolutely what's needed. Um, and you know, I think the people who take control of their health and can really understand what they need and when they need it are already doing better than a lot of people who are just like, okay, they said I should take this, I'll take this. Yeah. Um, but so long story short, five years of in and out of different facilities. She was probably in five different inpatient stays. At one point, she ran away from a facility near the DC area, and my dad had a missing person ad on the news oh my God. for her for three weeks.
1: And was she taking uh, meds as, as prescribed? I,
0: I doubt in that three week period. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. But she, you know, she felt awful.
1: When she was on them. Yes. Yes. They made
0: her feel awful. And she was drooling and shaking, and she couldn't sleep. And she just was – she could hardly speak. I mean, and she was a super high-functioning, you know.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Like I said, you know, first class of women at Columbia Business School, management consultant, Mm. like not, you know, not old enough to be, like, losing her marbles, and she was not able to hardly converse. And um, that was terrifying to watch when your parent is, like, shaking feebly. I mean, I don't – it must be so hard for people who who, when their parents become elderly to, to watch that deterioration. But I was, you know, in my early 20s. So that was just like, I wasn't ready for that yet.
1: Your world must have felt so upside down and unsafe. I can't imagine.
0: Well, yeah. And I kind of had to all of a sudden also be the like adult navigating her care right. and stuff and trying to find the answers. So it was like, you know, not only dealing with a tough thing, but then also having to like be the one that's like, okay, we're going to figure this out. We're going to go here. And what did the doctor say? And, you know, all this stuff. And meanwhile, I'm like, oh my God, this is just so intense and terrifying. But she eventually, um, December 13th, 2010, she took her life and I am so sorry. Thank you. But it's, you know, it's been seven and a half years, so I can speak about it now But it was, you know, just to the point where she felt like she wasn't really even a person because she was so drugged up. And she also really felt like she couldn't get off those things in a way that was going to not leave her in a manic state occasionally, and also that her family was going to really like let that happen. And she just, you know, she was so depressed. And, you know, suicidal ideations are you know, a side effect of a lot of antipsychotics too, which is really kind of ironic mm-hmm. um, and seems like should not be the case. <laughs> yes,
1: uh, for, for a lot of people, not not for everybody. Some, they work great. Uh, and apparently now the DNA testing that they do can really help eliminate a lot of the trial and error uh, that would otherwise be a nightmare. Uh, I had a reaction to Abilify that was nothing short of horrifying. It was fantastic for a month and then like a light Turned off and it went into nothing but suicidal ideation, anxiety, and insomnia. And, uh, I had been doing the dance with meds long enough to know, okay, this one is not working for me. Take myself off it, let my shrink know what's going on, and be patient with the process. And after about three months, I finally felt like, okay, you know, now we can try something else. And I did eventually find something else, but it, yes, uh, the reaction of any particular med to any particular person uh, can be so widely different and really awful, or fantastic and life-changing.
0: Yeah, so I think you know the the potential side effects are, you know, you've heard a commercial like there's a laundry list. It's and a they joke. Just...
1: It's a sketch. It's so crazy.
0: Yeah, it's. Like, you kind of laugh, and then mm-hmm. it's like it hits close to home, and then you're like, oh my God, like my parent is like one of the potential side effects. Like, this is not good. And I would say also, she had just like lost hope. You know, she didn't want to live like that. It was, she was barely alive in the way that she was, you know, so drugged up. And she just felt like, I don't want to do this anymore. And, you know, I don't, that was her choice, and I don't blame her for it. But I mean, I obviously wish she had not made that decision um and so i was you know i was it was a couple of days before christmas and uh she was supposed to come to new york to, to christmas with us and she had written us all you know suicide notes and you know made presents and everything and just they were left in her apartment i think in boston where she was living um and then you know coincidentally, I, had, I was working at IBM at the time, and I just knew that that in marketing and like huge, you know, marketing program, and I knew that wasn't my calling. And I wanted to do something where I could actually, you know, make a difference in the world and make it hopefully a better place uh, in some way. And I started, you know, I didn't know what that was. So I started taking the GMAT and I thought I was going to go to business school and I'll figure it out there. And so... I had My applications were due about two weeks after her death, and I was just totally thrown. Like, I didn't know how to actually write essays and, you know, get all my recommendations together and, like...
1: Like, doing laundry during that time is challenging.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I was, like, I didn't think I was going to get to do it. You know, I didn't think I was going to pull it off. Um, And I did my friends were really incredible they you know three in the morning editing drafts and just trying to you know help make it happen
1: and and what a great example of the importance of a support system whether you are the person who is experiencing it or you are someone left in the wake of it or in the wake of it as it's happening it is so important to not try to do it on your own and think that you can keep recharging your battery
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I was like in bed for weeks. I mean, there was no, I don't think I, I don't think I ate something, you know, (laughs) other than like a glass of wine for weeks, you know, it was just like, yeah, I I know this is not going to be, I'm not going to be normal for a while. And that's okay. Um, And my friends were really terrific and helped get a couple, you know, applications out the door. Luckily, I'd done enough, you know, up until then. Um, So I ended up, I told myself at that point, if I get in anywhere I've applied, I applied to three schools or something, I will go and I will use it as the opportunity to change my career path and fix this crazy healthcare system in whatever way that I can, you know, be of service to it. And my success with integrative medicine, both with my Lyme and then with my, Forget what the actual term is for losing your period, but um, amenorrhea—that's what it's called. Um, just had shown me that you know when you really take things into your own hands and you're working with people who are determined to get to the root cause of it, and you might have to work with a number of different kinds of doctors and practitioners to get there. But when you keep fighting, like my experience was that you can get to the root cause of it in those two instances. And when I sort of trusted that these, you know, notable doctors at notable hospitals, like McLean is very, you know, famous hospital in Boston, and that's where her doctor was. And I thought, oh, they know what they're doing. You know, they'll be able to figure this out, or they'll see the signs, or they won't keep her on these drugs forever like this. I mean, this must just be temporary, um, that it really failed me. And so that's another large part of why I am a patient advocate is that if you don't, like, not trust nobody, but You know, you are really in the driver's seat and all of these different doctors and practitioners are replaceable. And if you don't have somebody working with you who is determined to lift the hood and do the heavy lifting of trying to figure this out. And
1: be curious and and passionate and let you know that they are on your team and that you are not an inconvenience to and them.
0: Being open minded to different things they might not know about and being open right. to, you know, talking to a practitioner who does or reading that research or let's try it. I mean, if you're, you know, if you meaning you're the family and the patient are game, then so am I. That should be, you know, willing to do whatever. And, and I had a lot of conversations with my mom's doctors over those five years about things i had more experimental treatments that i had read about that were more natural that were more curative and what did they think about that and basically saying my family's like this is not a solution what you've done here so we're trying we're open to other right let's try whatever and they were very you know like i don't really know about that but um yeah i'll look into it like of course they never do
1: Um, there's such a condescending attitude of western medicine towards eastern medicine and there's certainly a lot of charlatans on both sides but um just that prevailing view that you know we do it better here
0: right we know or it that's all. like the other you know it's right. it's similar to, you know it sounds like to mm-hmm. what's going on with the political climate now it's this very polarized yeah the other and like not even trying to understand or have a dialogue it's like why do you think that way like you know, show me examples of why like my way doesn't work. Oh, okay, Mm -hmm. actually, maybe that's a good example or something. You know, it's...
1: I have a friend whose life was saved by Chinese herbs. His kidneys were shutting down and they could not figure out why. And somebody said to him, you should go see this guy. He's American, but he studied uh, Chinese herbs in China. And um, he treats terminally ill... Cancer patients. And he went in to see this guy and he looked at all the meds that my friend was taking. And he said, okay, uh, stop taking this one, stop taking this one, keep taking this one, stop taking that one. Mixed him up these herbs and said, you're going to feel worse for about seven days and then you're going to start to feel better. And he did. And it fixed him and saved his life. Absolutely saved his life. He had gone from like 200 pounds to 130 and nobody had any idea what was. what was going on. But go ahead.
0: That's a great example. I now, with my brand, WellBe, film stories of health recovery uh, through integrative medicine. Um, It's just what you hear when people fully heal and the stories of how many people dismiss them or sent them out in a rabbit hole of different, you know, taking out half their colon without addressing, you know, maybe you have a gut problem, you know, it's like, oh, your colon's not working. We'll just remove it. You know, that was literally said to a girl that I interviewed, and she was like, excuse me? Like, don't you want to know why it's not working? Like, (laughs) you know, she's like, oh, we'll we'll just take out this section. And I have have a family friend who, you know, very notable doctors at New York Presbyterian did take out half of her colon and then figured out that, oh, no, you have such bad constipation that it's causing like a laceration in the lower part of your colon. So taking out that part didn't matter. It's going to do it to the other part too. Right. And so, you know, then do you get that part of your colon back? No. You know, do you get some sort of like compensation for that? It's just, you know, that's very troubling on that side of things. But I would say um, when I did get into business school and went there, it was very hard to find people that were interested in the kind of like business side of – wellness and integrative medicine, it was like either you're a practitioner and you have patients um, or, you know, that's kind of it or you're just kind of like a believer. And so, but there's a huge business of conventional healthcare, obviously. Oh, yeah. And so I was like, how is that possible? Like, how is there this much money in this part and like very few people doing things in this part? And so it was actually very hard for me, especially because I was at Northwestern in Chicago and I think a lot of the integrative health community is, is more so on the coast, um, to find people who wanted to talk to me about this stuff, and especially at business school. I mean, I was seen as really crazy. Um, and I thought, you know, I'm not a giant hippie. I'm not like a woo-woo flower child. Like, that's the stigma, right? Like, mm-hmm. But I just believe in... Like getting to the root cause of health issues. Yeah. Like, if,
1: if I take these medicines, do I have to start referring it to his mother earth?
0: Right. I'm like, do I have to, like, <laughs> kind of start wearing like hiking boots to like the <laughs> farmer's market. Like, can't I just wear my regular shoes? You know, like, it's just the stigma was hysterical. Um, and then of course, all these other conspiracy theories like get like roped into that. And it, it just kind of, uh, devalues the whole mm-hmm. mission or the whole, you know, view of, of the healthcare system when people start bringing in also like, other political issues or whatever. It's like, no, you got to like stay focused. And know? there are
1: charlatans on both sides. <laughs> and I've right. been to charlatans on both sides. Yes. Right.
0: And people will take advantage of the right. lack of regulation or the, you know, whatever to sell yeah. whatever. And, and I'm definitely weary too when I go to some of these practitioners and whatever, as well as doctors, of course. Um, so I left business school and I was sort of like, I don't know how I can start a business in this right now. It seems, you know, this is sort of before Instagram. There wasn't like a movement or a conversation around wellness like there is today. And so um I ended up working with a health tech company in New York doing patient engagement uh, software sales, basically. And I was in a hospital like once a week. And I actually ended up in a meeting because I was on the business development team with Johnson & Johnson, with the team that makes the like injectable Risperdal or whatever like the antipsychotic is. And I'm like just having this crazy moment of like, how did I get in here? You know, like how did my life from my mom's experience and this mission that I've, you know, taken on go so awry that now we're like talking about a deal we could do together. Like
1: wow.
0: you know, and it was just and my boss in the parking lot was like, I just saw the craziest white face I've ever seen. It was like you saw a ghost, and I should have never put you in that situation. And I really wasn't thinking when I, you know, asked you to come to this meeting with me, and I'm really sorry. Um, and you know, I thought that was really astute of him to figure out. But apparently it was just like written on my face. I was so upset that i was there and you know they're talking about the target they're all you know kind of homeless and whatever and i'm like no they're like my mom you know it's not just like junkies on the street and it was just a really eye-opening experience as to like if you can kind of like feel like these people aren't you know somebody that you'd be close to it's like easy to kind of not get too emotional about the work that you're doing
1: so much easier if they're a number than an actual person with actual loved ones and something to lose.
0: Yeah, that was that was wild. So, needless to say, I didn't love that. Um, so I was eager to get yeah. out of that job, and uh, I realized, you know, that what I really want the the stuff that helped me the most um, on this journey of integrative medicine and everything else was just awareness and education and. Seeing things that did work for people and hearing their stories of recovery, and not only to show people hope and inspiration that it's possible, but it gives them a couple places to start when they might be overwhelmed with like, "What the heck do I try to get you know, rid of this?" That, or... that is
1: the part that it, that sucks the most is when you are feeling the most drained is when you need to advocate for yourself the most. It's
0: yeah, and do the hard work, do like, the, the hard research, work. and the. Like trying different things and not giving up after the fourth person, you know, continuing to the fifth, to the seventh, to the tenth, you know, that's expensive. It's exhausting. And you just get, you know, more and more like you sort of give up. Yeah. Um, and you get resigned to like, well, this is just the way that it has to be. Um, and so I, that's what I just kind of jumped off a cliff. I, you know, I was getting married and I kind of, once I got married, I was on my honeymoon with a journal and I'm like, trying to figure out what, you know, Welby was going to be and uh, arrived at this kind of media-first concept and um, waited for a bonus, which was, you know, much needed. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then a week later, you know, left to to create it. And I've been, you know, filming sort of these experts that sit at this intersection between, you know, wellness and healthcare and functional medicine and stuff, as well as these stories of patient recovery and um, for you know, a little over a year now. So it's been a wild, wild ride. But part of it has also been now that I've, you know, gotten my patient advocate certification and I'm going through this, that people not, they want to hear the stories that I'm telling, but they also want to hear my story, which I didn't really tell very much um, ever, really.
1: About your mom and about yourself?
0: Myself or my mom, you know, a couple friends here and there knew I'd had Lyme, but I didn't Mm -hmm. really talk about it in a public way. And as I was getting going from this, I realized a lot of people were asking me to not just to talk about the business that I founded, but to tell my story to help bring awareness to not only kind of this, you know, crazy notion that mm. you should get to the root cause of mental health issues. I mean, that just is apparently crazy. Nobody really talks about that. Um, they're sort of like, you should get support. You should get maybe some pharmaceutical aids. But trying to find why it's happening right. is then really part of the conversation.
1: Yeah. Is it anything that you might be able to manage with certain things, uh, or is it something that is long term and genetic? And here, there's only going to be one or two things that that are going to work for it. But until you explore all those other options, you're not really fully advocating for your for yourself. But there's so many pitfalls along the way. So what what kind of advice do you have for? people are are there any stories that you can share
0: we have a few that were like mental health misdiagnoses and actually one that i filmed was a you know a really interesting coming together of of my lyme history and my lyme experience with the mental health component which was uh that of Allie hilfiger you know tommy hilfiger's daughter where they they misdiagnosed her with you know like a manic episode, she basically had a manic episode and put her into a inpatient program and tried to just you know put her on, or did put her on various drugs and say L- long
1: term st- or or uh, short term. Uh, she was drug.
0: it was a short term inpatient program, like a right. f- yeah. few months or something, right. maybe or a month. But the point was that they just said, "Oh, you have this mental health condition. We're just going to go with that." Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until it was just a miracle, really. There was one doctor who said, you know, you're talking a lot about joint pain too. Have you ever been tested for Lyme? And she's like, you know, what does that have to do with my, I feel like I'm going crazy. And she's like, a lot. Like when you have an undiagnosed spirochete, that gets in the brain and it makes people crazy, like syphilis or one of those, Mm -hmm. you know, similar conditions. And she said... I've now seen this a few times. People, it's undiagnosed for years, and it works itself into the brain, and then they just call it a mental health condition, and they just start medicating. But have you really done, you know, like extensive Lyme testing? Because it's really, really hard to get an accurate test, and let's try another one. Sure enough, crazy Lyme, all the co-infections just run away, and it took so much work. I mean, another 10 to 12 different practitioners to get Lyme out of her body in another like 10 years, but wow. she's fine now. And she's no, no, you know, trace of a mental health condition. It's,
1: is she wearing cargo shorts?
0: <laughs> she's very fashionable. Um, but another one was, a. Completely different, but similar in the sense that it was a misdiagnosed issue. Uh, a, a person I filmed had a toxic drug reaction to Synthroid, which is, you know, one of the most commonly, I think it is the most common commonly prescribed name brand drugs in America, which is for your thyroid. Okay. And um, 1% have a drug reaction, right? right. But she did. And she saw endocrinologist after endocrinologist and psychiatrist after psychiatrist and she was having the craziest bouts of anxiety and depression just so low to mania to all this stuff but on on paper her blood work looked normal
1: and nobody thought to say are there any new meds that you've been on they're like what are the side oh effects. that's
0: a really common drug mm-hmm. like dismissed oh your thyroid numbers look good quote-unquote it's not mm. that. It's all yes. these other things. You're having a hard time. You're really stressed. Like they just made it about like everything else. And she's like, "No, I do not feel like myself." I mean, these are crazy swings, like Yeah. And you're a
1: hysterical lady. That's your problem.
0: Yeah, I mean, she was like 25 and they're just like, "Oh, you're just like being dramatic, you know, whatever." And it took, I mean, she even was put into an inpatient program at a mental health care facility and her parents had said, we really do not want to go the pharmaceutical route, but she was 27 at that point, And so they basically said, you're so disruptive here that if you don't take an antipsychotic, you can't stay. And she signed the paperwork to take it. And the very first night that she's on it, she's hearing this, like these crazy, she thinks there's an earthquake because it was actually in California. And it wasn't an earthquake, it was tremors from the Risperidol or one of these, mm. you know, other antipsychotics like it. And she freaked out, kinda realized, okay, there's a price to pay for taking that. I didn't know I was gonna be having these tremors and such like told her parents what she'd done and they flew out from New York that minute, pulled her out, you know, said, No, we're gonna figure this out. And it was a long road after that, but she was put with – somebody referred her to a, I think, more functional or integrative uh, endocrinologist out in Stanford. You know, there's all these fancy doctors in New York, and she's seen them all, and yet this very random guy with a tiny practice, you know, out there ends up saying, this is a Synthroid. We're going to put you on a natural thyroid supplement, and we're just going to see what happens. And they did, and within days, she – all of her – she came down – And no more mania, no more crazy swings. And, you know, she still has Hashimoto's. That was how it all started. That's Mm -hmm. why she went on the Synthroid. But she's managing it with, I think, Armor, which is like, you know, one of the more natural thyroid supplements. Um, It's pig-derived instead of um, pharmaceutical. And it took so many – it took years of her life. She wasn't able to work um, they they also, when her parents pulled her out of that mental health care facility, they told her they'd been recommending that, ironically, McLean, which was where my mom was, that's where they were suggesting that they put her because it was in a more long-term way. And they told her parents that they're were, they were being irresponsible for not putting her away in this facility. And, wow. And her parents were like, well, we don't care. We believe in her. We don't believe she randomly started having, you know, right. mania, whatever. We're going to figure this out. And thank God they fought and believed in her and, you know, didn't kind of just eventually kind of turn on her and think, all right, well, maybe she's just, you know, lost it or something, you know, that they really, they just kept at it. And now she's like, you know, a beautiful, healthy girl. Like she's an actress and yeah, she's.
1: You shouldn't have told me that last part. I I I liked her until that last part.
0: She was a dancer before that. (laughs) Okay. she wasn't an actress at the time
1: but it was I'm just I'm watching Barry and the and they <laughs> main the main female character in there is an actress who's so actressy her character is actressy and it, I'm just like oh my god yeah go ahead sorry no
0: no she decided after her whole ordeal I think that um that life was kind of short and she'd been you know trying to be a dancer for a long mm-hmm. time and she kind of realized that you know I'm gonna... Try, try acting and she started at like 30 years old and you know that's, that's awesome. unheard of but she said yeah. you know that's just what i love doing and i don't care so.
1: you have to interview my friend uh joe the guy i was telling you about he used to be the angriest hockey player he would just just bark at us from the bench and after his near-death experience he is the mellowest guy he's just happy and this is now i don't know 12 years later still just happy to be out there just has fun it's yeah. it's amazing it's beautiful it uh, is
0: and a lot of people that i've met now in the wellness and integrative medicine world they that's that's how they got there you know they had a horrible experience themselves and managed to come out on the other side and were like whoa i got to give back i can't yeah. believe that i got through that and it would just be abhorrent to go back to whatever they were doing before and not try to help others and yeah as if nothing happened
1: and to me is one of the most beautiful things about being alive is finding some type of meaning or purpose in your life that we can connect to other people and not only not feel alone but help somebody else feel less alone and and maybe rekindle a, a spark of of hope in them it's uh it's the best congrats on on what you're doing and we need more people doing what you're doing it's really it's really beautiful
0: thank you and obviously i feel the same about what you're doing i think there's a lot of people out there who you know i t- i talk a lot about what's wrong with the system but that doesn't necessarily help somebody who's really struggling at that exact second. Um, And I know that it's a very complicated topic and everyone's just trying to do their best they can. But my belief and where it comes together with my problems with the healthcare facility and when people actually get better is when they actually feel empowered to do so. And when they advocate for themselves and they feel worthy of getting better and are like, no, you know what? This is my show. Thank you so much for playing but you can just leave now. I'm going to go to a different doctor who's going to be more interested in, you know, working with me the way that I need to be worked with. And that is like turning on its head a lot of our preconceived notions about the doctor-patient relationship. And it's Mm -hmm. like, yes, sir, you know, I'll just take this pad and I won't really bother you for any more questions. And, you know, and I've completely changed the way that I, you know, I've Biggest pain in the ass now, yeah. But I'm just like, this is what I need, and here's my 47 questions, and you're gonna mm-hmm. w- walk me through every single one of them. And mm-hmm. if you don't have the answers or you're not interested to find them, thanks for playing. But yes.
1: I'll be I'll writing be on a- my way. Yeah. I'll be writing a review on you on Yelp, before. or just
0: like you're not for me. You know, I'm oh, gonna no. go we find someone. We gotta take them down. We gotta. Yelp is like a weird place to do it, though. I feel like there's got to be a better I don't know if
1: I've ever done that, but I have switched doctors because I had one doctor who was so uncurious about what was wrong with me. I, I, It was almost funny how... Little he cared, and so yeah i I switched doctors, and I still don't know if I've found one that I like, but you know maybe off air i'll I'll talk to you and, and pick your brain about it.
0: It's a journey, and sometimes somebody really you can't nail it all the time. like the practitioner that can help you heal the candida may maybe that's you know what they can't take you to the next step but that doesn't mean you couldn't you right. shouldn't stop searching you're yeah. on a journey you're peeling back the layers like the sort of nirvana of perfect health is underneath and you got to like keep keep at it yes you know and it does it's not a one and done experience and you know when i think when people f- switch the perception of that, you're more willing to do the work. You're like, okay, I'm not quite there yet on my thyroid, but man, did I figure out my yeah. back pain or, yeah. you know, whatever it is that people are dealing with.
1: And, and there are so many things where Western medicine is amazing at, you know, reconstructive surgery and, you know, uh, orthopedic surgery and, and and stuff like that. But. Oh my
0: gosh! In an emergency, you better believe I want all the Western conventional medicine there is. Yes. You know, I mean, yeah. what they can do now with laparoscopic surgery and it's in utero unreal. and with you know all these injuries of the veterans coming back from war and putting them back together. And, I mean, it is truly remarkable. Yes. And immunotherapy for the cancer stuff. I mean...
1: I'm having surgery as we speak <laughs> right now. You can't even see it, but there's a stint in my leg.
0: <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's very cool. It's just like you know, what's that too much of a good thing? Like, yeah. it's, you know, I think basically people marveled at the power of it and then thought, oh, we'll use it for everything. Everything,
1: exactly. What a great way, what a great way to put it. So if if a single person has questions, can they reach out to you or your company or how how would they get yeah, a hold of so, you? Yeah, um,
0: so my brand, as I mentioned, is WellBe, but it's GetWellBe on all. So it's getwellbe.com.com. g-e-t-w-e-l-l-b-e dot com as well as on all of our social platforms and we're mostly active on Instagram but all of our interviews are on YouTube as well in um, Facebook, so you know we also have the Wellbe podcast, which we launched. Awesome, uh, July twelfth. And it, it's
1: called Wellbe. W. W-E- the Wellbe L-L-L- podcast. The Wellbe podcast. Correct? Yeah. So
0: W E L L B E, and uh, you know we tell a lot of our stories and interviews and stuff are are there as well. So a lot oh, of
1: different ways. Such an important uh, service. Congrats on it, and thanks for sitting down and sharing all yeah, this with us. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Many, many thanks, and we'll put the links to all her stuff up there. Uh, Today's episode is sponsored by Roman. Uh, If ED is something that you suffer from, guys, uh, there's a really simple, convenient way to get a prescription for ED medicine, and it's by using Roman. I use them, and I love just being able to do it from my computer if I need to refill a prescription. Um, You will have a doctor ask you some questions. And then you can get a prescription that you can uh, get refilled. And it's nice. It's shipped to your house. It's super affordable, way more affordable than it was when I was trying to get it through my insurance, which I pay a ridiculous amount for. So uh, just go to getroman.com mental. And you'll fill out an online visit. And if your doctor decides that treatment would be appropriate, they'll prescribe genuine medication that can be delivered in discreet packaging right to your door with free two-day shipping. Uh, Nobody likes to talk about erectile dysfunction. Well, I do, especially on elevators. Uh, But it's important to get checked out. And and it it can affect your relationship. And uh, it's something that I'm glad that I am not embarrassed about and that I get help for because it's uh, it shouldn't be a big deal. And with Roman, it's easy. So just go to GetRoman.com slash mental to get a free online visit and a free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash mental for a free visit to get started. GetRoman.com slash mental. Today's episode is also sponsored by a new podcast called The Untitled Dad Project and there's a writer named uh, Janielle Kastner, and she never knew her dad. Her dad was never in her life. And she got his email address, and as she was beginning to draft him a message, he died before she could send him anything. And being a writer, she thought, well, let's make a story out of this. Let's let's find out the details of my dad's life, why he wasn't in my life. Who was he? And let's treat it as if it's a story that we are writing. So we can look at genre, plot, foreshadowing. Let's talk to therapists. Let's talk to the reverend who officiated his funeral. So each of them can help us sculpt this script of my dad's life and how it's affected me or not affected me. And spanning four years and eight chapters, The Untitled Dad Project is a surprisingly funny, honest, and unflinchingly intimate investigation into the grieving process by way of the creative process. Join Untitled Dad Project because we owe it to ourselves to tell our own stories even if we have to write them ourselves. Chapter 1 premieres July 8th, which is passed already, and chapters drop weekly. Listen and subscribe to Untitled Dad Project, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get to some surveys. Actually, this is an email that I got from... A guy uh, named Mike, and he writes, I have a question regarding my significant other. She's a delightful person, and I love her dearly, but she has a fair host of mental health issues. I promised her I wouldn't share the details about her abuse story, but she had a very, very traumatic childhood. She's going through a rough patch and is afraid and ashamed to talk about her story. I know more than anyone other than her and her abusers. She has gone to therapy Before, but never really opened up there. So it was never that helpful. Any idea and how to help her get help? And I wrote back and said, Mike, this might sound counterintuitive, but start by getting help for yourself. Because very often when we're in a relationship with people who are deeply wounded and, quote, stuck. We become so focused on them that we ignore what's going on inside us. If she wants help finding help, that's one thing. But if she's resistant, that's her choice. And trying to fix her is a form of insanity and its own illness. And a lot of times we're just replaying out something that happened in childhood that we were, you know, where we were wishing somebody would change. But thank you for that. This is from the uh, sexual abuse or violation of a young male by older female survey I don't think that, I don't think the name of that survey is long enough and this is filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself covert incest survivor and he writes I'm a survivor of covert incest perpetrated by my mother it started when I was seven or eight and it continued up through my 30s in various forms and degrees. Uh, I've told counselors and therapists and a few close friends, but it's not something I bring up with most people I know, even though it's one of the most significant influences on my personality and life. I once told a close female friend who actually worked with my mother in the same office, and the friend said that she didn't believe me because she, quote, knew my mother from working with her, and couldn't believe she would do something like that. I don't talk much to that friend anymore. Yeah, I experienced that too from a uh, neighbor lady who just did not want to believe that um, that was my experience. I've always felt intensely claustrophobic and suspicious when most women flirt with me, even when I understand that it's harmless and I can walk away from it or shut it down anytime I want. Sometimes I freeze, but inside I can feel myself trying to escape and retreat. This has made loving sex pretty much impossible. Do you feel any damage was done? Yes. I have deeply negative associations with sex and sexuality and for as long as I can remember I've been unable to maintain an erection when having sex, even with women I'm genuinely attracted to who care deeply for me. I think it's my brain's way of keeping me safe because when my mother was behaving seductively, I instinctively knew it was deeply disturbing and disgusting, so my brain short-circuited my sexual response as a way of protecting myself and therefore incapacitating my penis." Either that or it's a reflection of the discomfort and suspicion I feel when someone wants to get close to me, or both. Uh, I've never been in a serious relationship, and I'm now approaching the age of 40, while virtually all of my friends and peers have families, marriages, and homes. It makes me deeply sad that I'm missing out. Thank you so much for sharing that, and it's something that um, a lot of people, men and women, have experienced and because it's covert it's not overt uh it can fly under the radar but the damage doesn't fly under the radar and uh as you say uh in your uh question and comments to make the podcast better i love this podcast i appreciate your efforts to bring attention and awareness to covert emotional incest it's as real and damaging as a punch to the soul with brass knuckles well said Send you some love, buddy. This is an email I got from somebody. Um, they write, hey there, hope you're doing well. Out of respect for your time, I thought an email might be less disruptive than an unannounced phone call. And there, it's somebody who's doing online marketing in, in India. And I just wanted to highlight the fact that this polite person knows the importance of not making an unannounced phone call. The jolt of picking up the phone and not knowing who it is can destroy your life. That's why I ask, if you're ever going to call me, call me first to let me know you're going to be calling me again in 10 seconds. It's not that much to ask. In fact, what people in England do, is they have palace guards with the long trumpets and the flags hanging off them. They have them pile into the room. They give them a toot. Then the queen enters. She curtsies. And then she says, heads up, yo, your phone's about to blow up. And then she drops the mic. And she leaves. I should have mentioned that she comes in with a mic, but I think that's probably obvious, because you know the queen. If it's good enough for the British... I just love that an unannounced phone. When was the last time anybody ever used a fright an unannounced phone call? Oh, that made me laugh. Thank you for indulging my little my little side trip there. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Secret Keeper, and she identifies as straight. She's in her forties. She was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I never reported it. An older cousin began touching me inappropriately when I was around four. It happened many times throughout my childhood. The last couple of times I would have been 13 or 14 and he was in his 20s. I would freeze and sort of leave my body, not be able to fight or scream. I am now 45 and still struggle with dissociating during intimacy. At 13, I gathered the courage to to tell my mother he tried to have sex with me. Her response was something like, why didn't you just leave? You need to stay away from him and keep this to yourself. It will cause too much trouble in the family. Boy, you talk about somebody making it about them and just leaving that person hanging. She's never been physically or emotionally abused. I, I would beg to differ on the emotionally abused. I mean, that is, that is, a lot of people will say that when they go to a parent and that parent ignores them saying hey this is happening to me or this happened to me and i'm hurting that that hurts even more than the thing that they were sharing with them any positive experiences with the abuser no positive experiences when i was in college my extended family quote drew names for christmas presents he got my name each person opened their gift and showed everyone what they got he got me sexy underwear oh my god Darkest thoughts, I fantasize about having sex with almost everyone I know or meet, excluding relatives. In reality, I've only had sex with a few people. Darkest secrets, I lie a lot about anything and everything. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I mostly fantasize about being with strangers or people I barely know. Nothing kinky, just straight up sex, then never having to see them again if I don't want to. Sharing that is a turn on. What if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? So many things. I would like to tell my dad about my childhood sexual abuse. I don't think he has a clue. What if anything do you wish for? I wish I would take better care of myself. Almost all of the things that you are describing in here are such common ripples from what you experienced. The sexuality, uh, you know, the, 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 um, The most powerful sexual fantasy being sex with strangers and being turned off by having sex with somebody that you know, Um, struggling with self-care. That's a really, really common thing for people who experienced neglect or abuse in childhood. Uh, Have you shared these things with others? No. When I start talking about my innermost feelings, I cry a lot. I guess I have a belief that I shouldn't burden others with my problems. Quite the opposite. It's time to, to share those feelings with other people, but to maybe find a new group of people that feel safe, people who understand, like maybe a support group. How do you feel after writing these things down? It's obvious to me that when my mom told me to keep my abuse a secret, it set up an unhealthy pattern that I have not been able to break. You deserve some unconditional love. You know, we all do. And for somebody who's experienced what what you have, you know, it could very well save your life. But even more important than that is... is is. It can introduce you to the life that you dream of, of being your authentic self, of feeling safe in the world, of not dreading leaving your house or, you know, passing somebody in the hallway and not knowing what to say or all the other anxieties that people have when the world doesn't feel safe to them. And, uh, I've gotten to experience both, both that feeling of, of, Dread of wanting to isolate and feeling like what's the point and god? I wish I died in my sleep and the feeling of Getting up and being excited to take on the day and having a group of friends that I trust and so I know That there is nothing particularly special about my ability to heal or recover I just Kept going back to my meetings and therapy and making phone calls when I didn't want to and, you know, making coffee at a meeting or setting up chairs because I didn't want to die. You know, desperation can be a gift. That's what we do with that desperation. And it's so hard because we get so close to, you know, giving up or just saying, fuck it in a good way and trying something new. You know, there's a saying in recovery, nothing changes until... What is it? I just fucked it up. Uh, nothing changes if nothing changes. You keep doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you get. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself. When you have Stockholm syndrome for your depression, and he writes, "I'm not sure if this qualifies as awfulsome, but I wanted to share anyway." For the majority of my life, I've never really been good at anything, and not, and no. That's not a in-my-head thing. I literally have had failure after failure. I joked to my friend, and yes, that's singular, that I'm just a walking curse. It fueled my depression, spiraled to suicide, and even further, believe it or not. I tell you all this because today, as I was listening to this podcast, I decided, decided to do something different, something I'd never thought to do before. I decided to open up a blank sketchbook and draw. And for the first time in my life, I realized I was actually good at something. Not great, not award-winning, just good. And in that moment, I realized that was enough. Enough to make all the shit I've been through in my life, the heartache, the self-doubt, it made it all worth it. I cried for almost three hours. A weight like a mountain lifted from my chest. You're also good at crying. Let's, let's add that to the list. Three-hour cry, man, that's fucking awesome. Awesome. That is a purge. That is a, that is a gift. To be able to cry for three hours, That that is, uh, man. I know it may seem simple, but now I know I'm good enough. P.S. Love the podcast. Uh, I've turned several people I know onto it. Please keep doing what you do. You don't know what it means to us. Thank you for that. Man, I love when people have breakthroughs. Just fucking fires me up. Just fires me up. And I mean that in the most uh, 1980s fraternity bro-y way possible. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Mooney. And she writes, The lowest point of my anorexia was my sophomore year of high school. I was in outpatient treatment but at this point was still resistant to change, scared out of my mind and steadily losing weight. My parents were angels and the biggest reason I'm alive today. They were as understanding and supportive as possible but refused to sit around while I slowly killed myself. Eventually, I took a medical leave from school and was tutored from home while my mom quit her job to basically act as a nurse and make sure that I committed to recovery for four months as I moved towards a healthy weight. My last days in school before taking this break were the worst. I had never been more depressed and emaciated, and my mom and I basically only communicated through yelling and or crying. I was an absolute demon child, but was so consumed by my sickness that it felt like I was outside of my body, watching myself break down and lash out over and over again. My awfulsome moment happened on one of those particularly bad days. My mom confronted me about not eating breakfast and my response was some variation of fuck you. We spent the next 20 minutes or so screaming at each other. uh screaming at each other and at this point I was just crying and rolling around on the ground like some sort of demented overgrown toddler having a temper tantrum just a piece of toast, she begged, which is what I could normally force myself to eat before going to school. Not just any piece of toast. I could only manage some bullshit light wheat bread from Trader Joe's that was about half the size and calories of a regular piece of toast uh, with nothing on it. No, I screamed over and over again because God forbid I ingest anything even slightly more fattening than a piece of chewing gum or breathing in air. I won the argument, because I was a monster, and went to school without eating breakfast. It's been about six years since that day, but I still think about it somewhat regularly. Food has never been, and probably will never be easy for me, and my relationship with restricting and now binging is currently complicated at best. But I refuse to ever let myself get back to the point of screaming and crying like a big baby over 40 calories of what was basically a tiny sliver of cardboard. It was a ridiculous argument, and I behaved horribly, but thankfully, it was one of the moments in the deepest, darkest part of my sickness that made me think, God damn it, this is now, this is not how I want to live the rest of my life. There were bad and bizarre times after that day. One time, I ate a single bagel over the course of eight hours, but it marked a turning point in my recovery. If my mom suggesting I eat breakfast was enough to make me absolutely lose my mind then the rest of my life was going to be lonely, shitty, and probably pretty short. I wasn't and am still not ready to give up on my life yet. So that moment made me really stop and think okay, it's time to pull myself together. How good of a job I've done so far is hard to say, but I'm trying. And I'm not afraid to eat real bread anymore. Wow, thank you for that. That, that what a picture you painted internally and externally of of your life that was that was like a little movie thank you thank you and i love that you're honest about the fact that it's you know recovery is is hard it's a lot of two steps forward and one step back but life does get better and it is worth that effort and it's never As bad as we make it out in our brain, what recovery is going to look like, what getting healthier is going to look like, what taking the suggestions from healthy people who know the issues that we're struggling with, be they professional or, you know, a peer, who's a little further down the line in recovery. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself LBJ. This is our, our last survey. And she writes, My partner and I are coming up on our anniversary. I've been thinking a lot lately about when we began dating. I truly do fall more in love with him every day. But the moment I realized I was in love with him was after we'd had sex for the first time. We used a condom and when we were done, we couldn't find it. It slipped off and was stuck inside me. This had never happened to me before. I was mortified. I sort of casually and discreetly question mark, yeah, right, Uh, in parentheses, started fishing around inside my vagina, but I couldn't feel it at all. We searched the bed, nothing. Then he looked at me, laughing, and said, I could try. So I sat down on the bed, opened my legs, and he went in. After a few moments, he felt the condom, and with some finessing, was able to get it out. We were laughing hysterically, but I was still embarrassed. Then he said, that was kind of hot. I felt this deep sense of comfort, like he wasn't even capable of judging me, and I just knew I was in love. He still makes me laugh that hard, and I've never felt even remotely judged by him. P.S. We gave up on condoms. Oh, you guys are the best just the best it's this week in particular it it the surveys just made my just made my week and um thank you for all the the ways that you guys contribute to the podcast people that are monthly donors you're a godsend you know because advertising kind of comes and goes and um we can always use more, more monthly donors. I don't know how that went from a, uh, thank you into a plea for more monthly donors, but, um, thank you, uh, for filling out those surveys. And if you've never filled them out, go to our website, metalpod.com and, and fill out the surveys. It's a, as you've heard over the last hour, it's a really big part of the show and, um, is so compelling. If you're out there and you're stuck, you are not alone. Not by any stretch of the imagination. And the very thing that you think makes you different and so far away is actually the thing that connects us. But we can't see that in other people when we're just passing them on the street. And if we don't open up and we don't start connecting to people, we never get to experience that. We never get to discover that. And that to me has been really the, the silver lining of life is having to connect to people to save my life and then realizing, oh my God, I wouldn't have discovered this if I hadn't had to do it to save my, my life. And now I get all these awesome tools to use in other parts of my life. Anyway, you're not alone, and thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.